Well, good morning. Let's begin in Matthew chapter 13. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 13. I would like to begin by thanking the shepherds of this church for the invitation once again uh, to be here. I'm sure some of you remember uh, when I was here before. Thanks for coming back. I'm sure uh, like uh, all the other churches I've ever worked with, there are folks that don't know me. The first thing I want to say about myself this morning is I am not the enemy and the second thing that I would like to say is I, I have taken issue with the flyer to some degree because it looks like the flyer is communicating that I am the evil that you need to be turning away from. <laughs> so I just want to set that straight uh, as we get started this week that uh, I'm not going to be encouraging you to turn away from, from me, uh, but all jokes aside, there, there, there is an enemy that Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the Word of God describe with, with the definite article, the, the enemy. And so in Matthew chapter 13 and in verse 39, Jesus is explaining the parable of the tares. <clears throat> and he would say, the enemy, the enemy who sowed them is the devil. So first and foremost this morning, I, I just want to encourage you to think about, you know, as Christians, we, we put the emphasis on the Christ. And as we think about Jesus, he is the definitive article. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He is the only begotten God. He is the only begotten Son. He is the Savior, definitive article. And so as we think about the enemy, Jesus would have us to understand that there is a, 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 a definite article, the, that is to be placed before the one who is opposing us. And so when we are introduced to him from the beginning, we are introduced to him in Genesis chapter 3 as the serpent, and at the conclusion of God's eternal purpose in the book of Revelation and in chapter 12, we are told that the serpent of Genesis 3 is a great fiery red dragon. And he has seven heads and he has ten horns. And he is the devil, which is a title that is applied to him that refers to his work as being an accuser, a deceiver, a slanderer. He is identified in Revelation 12 as Satan, which is a word that communicates that he is our adversary, that he is our, our enemy. And as the enemy... He is the tempter. God tempts no one. It is, it is the enemy who tempts us. When we look at the descriptions of the enemy in the New Testament, we see him described as the God of this world. We see him described as the prince of this world, the prince of the power of the air. He is the prince of demons. He is a spirit being. He is not a human being. He is not a divine being. He is not deity. He does not have the nature or the characteristics or the attributes of deity. He's not, not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. He's not all-powerful. 
but he's not a human being. He's a spirit being. He is above humans, but he is below deity. And so I believe that he falls into that angelic being category of person. He is described as the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, present tense. He now works in the sons of disobedience. He is described by Jesus as a murderer from the beginning, a liar from the beginning, and he is bent on your individual personal destruction. The role that he longs to play in your life is to destroy your relationship with the way, the truth, and the life. And so as we, as we think about the enemy at the outset of our work together this morning, we'll, we'll devote our, our attention on Monday night to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 33 in which we're encouraged not to be deceived. And when you look at that word deceived, well, you'll see that, that it has the idea of, of, of roaming in one sense, of, of drifting away from safety or truth or, or, or virtue. But it also carries with it the idea of being led away, of not just roaming off or drifting off or wandering off, but to be led away from the truth and to be purposefully led into error. And so the word is used in an active form to describe someone who is leading us into error, who is seducing us into error. And that is who our enemy is. That is who the enemy is. In Revelation 12.9, the present participle is used with the def- definite article as the title of the devil, the deceiver. The deceiver. He is the deceiving one. And so when we talk about the enemy, and when we think about the devil, when we think about Satan, w- we don't want to just... Look into the abyss. We don't just want to stare into the darkness of of him and his his person and his work. We want to see him in the light of the light of the world. And so as we think about all this information that we are given about the enemy, and as we think about him being the deceiver, what, what is he about? Well, he is about leading us away from the way, the truth, the life. He is about leading us away from Jesus who is described as the one in whose mouth is no deceit. The deceiver deceives. In the mouth of Jesus, there is no deceit. And I do think that it's very helpful and I think it's important I think it's imperative for us to understand that in his role as the one who, who, who serves as, as our enemy, as in, in his role as the, as, as the deceiver, there are two primary ways in which he goes about seeking to deceive us, in which he goes about seeking to lead us away from Jesus. And the first way that he attempts to deceive us is through his appearance. This is how our culture... This is how the culture of the world presents the enemy to us in the form of his appearance. He is presented to us as a being who has horns and cloven hooves and he has a pointy tail and he has a pitchfork and he wears red tights. And I want to tell you this morning about that caricature of the enemy. He is not a comedic figure. He's not funny. 
He, he, he's not attempting to, to be funny. He is attempting to, to destroy you, to separate you from Jesus in time and for all eternity. And so as we think about him, he is a serious, he is a right serious person who is right serious about separating you from God. And so one of the ways that he goes about doing that is by manifesting himself in another form. And he manifests himself in another form as a means to deceive. And, and the point of him appearing in another form to deceive us is to, is to have us to believe that God is to be doubted and as a result of doubting God that, that we would then disobey God. And as we think about what he did in the beginning in Genesis, the third chapter, what he does in the Garden of Eden as he, as, as he appears in the form of a serpent is he establishes himself as a force to be reckoned with. He is a formidable opponent. In Genesis 3, he is appearing to them as a serpent. He's not a serpent. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verses 13 through 15, Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. He doesn't come to you with a t-shirt on that says, Hello, I am the enemy. Hello, I'm, I'm here to deceive you. Hello, I'm here to tempt you. Hello, I'm here to, to wreck your life in every way possible. Hello, I, I can't wait to ruin everything for you in time and forever. He comes to us as, a, as, as, as one sent, as a messenger of light. And when he does that, he, he does that for the purpose of deceiving us. In Revelation chapter 12, he, he's not a great red, fiery red dragon but that is how we need to view him. He's dangerous, and he's powerful, and he's formidable. And so he deceives us through his appearance, but he also deceives us through his words. And so Jesus would speak to us about this in John the 8th chapter, but from the beginning, as we think about the beginning of our, of our understanding of, of, of how he works. And so Genesis chapter 3, let's read the first six verses together. And think about what, what he says and, and why he says it. And, you know, the rest of the story is when the Lord God calls to Adam in verse 9 and, and he begins talking to Adam and Eve. They come to realize that the serpent wasn't their buddy. He wasn't their friend. He wasn't trying to help them. And so what did he do? He came and he appeared as a serpent and he, and he came with deceiving words. The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And by the way, I use the New King James Version. That's what I'll be reading from all week. New King James Version, the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said you shall not eat of, the, of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the, of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said... You shall not touch it. Make a note of that. We'll swing back to that. You shall not touch it lest you die. You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. 
I got ahead of myself, but I want you to, I want you to put a pin in that, nor shall you touch it, because we'll come back to that. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For the Lord knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, number one, that it was pleasant to the eyes, number two, and a tree desirable, number three, to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. What is the serpent doing? What is the enemy doing in Genesis 3, 1 through 6? Well, he's deceiving, and he's using speech, and he's using lies, and he's using half-truths, and he's using misleading words, and he's using misdirection. And so in Genesis 3, 1 through 6, what's the first thing that he does to, to Adam and Eve there? Well, he, he, he has them question the word of God. You see that? Verse 1, question the word of God. What did God say? And then the second thing that he does is he questions the goodness of God. Do you see that? He says, God lied to you. He said, God told you to do this and not do this. And the truth is, God is trying to suppress you. The truth is, this is a terrible injustice that's being done to you by God. The truth is, you you guys are victims. You guys are victims of the injustice of limitation. Here is a tree that you guys have seen and walked past. and, And when you consider how she saw that it was good for food and desirable to make one wise and pleasant to the eyes, God's holding back on you. And so in his questioning of the word of God and the goodness of God, what is he sowing in her heart? He's sowing a seed of discontent. And so they had this beautiful garden of paradise, this garden of Eden to live in. And what has he done? He has got them to focus on on the one command that they had been given in Genesis, the second chapter. And so now what are they experiencing? They are experiencing, and my my kids love it when I do this. So my son, I don't know if any of your kids have, have been so disrespectful to you as to refer to you this way, but my kids like to refer to me now, my son in particular, as an old head. And so when us old heads use a description like this, it just drives my kids crazy. But what is he doing here? He, he is planning into their, into their hearts this idea of FOMO, of the fear of missing out. That's what he's doing. Well, what did God say? Well, God lied to you. God knows that if you eat of this, that you're going to be like him and you're going to miss out on being like him if you don't eat of it. In other words, God is attempting to keep you from being all that you can be. And so what is the enemy doing? He's seducing them through lies which promise things that God has forbidden. Oh, God said, don't do that. Well, he just lied to you. He knows. And so he's trying to keep you from enjoying life. And so what did Eve do? Well, she thought about it. She meditated upon it. She revolved it around in her, in her head. And this is what happens. He deceives us with words. And so the first part of the process is we all have this shift in thinking. Well, here's what happens to our shift in thinking. It leads to a shift in behavior. 
And when we have a shift in our thinking that leads to a shift in our behavior, then we have a shift in our speech. So when you look at what she said in verse 3, you shall not eat it nor, nor shall you touch it. God didn't tell them not to touch it. That's a restriction she added. Genesis 2, 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to, to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the servant, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat, nor shall you touch it. From the beginning, it has not been God's will that we would revise His word. It has never been his will that we would add to it or we would take away from it. And so what is she doing in her mind as she is being deceived in appearance and in words? She is revising what God said and then she is rejecting it. And this process always produces the same result. Separation from God, spiritual and physical death. And so 1 John 2, 15 through 17, what does the deceiver always do? He always appeals to our desires. She saw that it was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise. So, if we're going to overcome the deceptions of the devil as he attempts to deceive us through his appearance and through his words, we are going to have to understand that exposing the deception of sin is what nullifies its power. Exposing the deception of it is what nullifies its power. And that's the rest of the story, right? The, the curse of, of God that he placed on, on, on the man and on the woman and on, and on the devil himself. The deceiver encouraged you to trust your feelings... This may be the most important thing I say this morning in the context of, of this first lesson. The deceiver encourages you to trust your feelings. The one in whose mouth is no deceit encourages you to trust in him and in his word. Feelings are deceptive. And you may feel one way right now and you may feel a completely different way a minute from now or five minutes from now or or half an hour from now, or this afternoon, or tomorrow, the one in whose mouth is no deceit encourages us to trust in him and in his word. The deceiver would say, pay attention to your feelings, and the Lord would say, pay attention to me. Pay attention to the spirit of truth. Pay attention to the word of God that is truth. The deceiver would say, how does that make you feel? And Jesus would say, have you not read? Have you not read? What are you deceived about this morning? As you think about that question, you just sit with it for a second. What are you deceived about this morning? If your answer is nothing, 
then I want to suggest to you that you're prideful. And I want to tell you there are times in which, you know, that's my answer to the question, what am I deceived about? I'm not deceived about anything. Well, what is pride? Pride is the, is, is the exaltation of, of self. You know, when we think about Jesus and we think about who he is and who we are in relationship to him, he is the exalted one. He, he is the name above all names that has been exalted to the right hand of the throne of God. He is the one in, in whose name there, there, there's only salvation in, in his name. And so when we think about God, and, and we think about the Godhead, and we think about the triune nature of God, and as we, come to, as, as we seek to come to terms with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, in John the 8th chapter and in verse 58, Jesus would, would say, To people that knew what he meant. Before Abraham was, I am. And so in in Genesis, the sixth chapter, God would would say to Moses, this is my name. And he he would say to to Moses in Exodus, the third chapter, in Moses' response to the question, who do I I tell Pharaoh sent me when I get there? You tell them that the I am sent you. And so the personal name of God, it is communicating that he, that he has no beginning, that he has no end, that he is from everlasting to everlasting. He is the great I am. He has no beginning. He will have no end. And that is not true of you. That is not true of me. And so what is pride? Pride is saying, I am who I am on my own without any regard for the I am. That's what that is. And that is what they do in the Garden of Eden. They just disregard what they knew to be true about him. That he had spoken and that he was good. And so in pride, what do we do? Well, we say things like, I don't have any need for him, and I don't need to depend on him, and I don't need to lean on him, and I don't need to thank him, and I don't need to glorify him. I'm doing pretty good. Thank you very much. I got this. And so essentially what pride is, it's just self-worship. And I, I think that's the fundamental problem in the world in which we live today, in, in, in our country, it's, it's just the, the deification of self, the worship of self. I did a, I did a lesson last year, and, and I think it's one of the ones that I'm going to do with you this week. And when it was over, one of the brothers came up to me afterward and he said, I am, I am so concerned about where our country is going. I, I just don't know where our country is going. And I said, brother, I am so concerned about the people of God, where the people of God are going. I don't know where the people of God are going. And it looks to me like too many of us are going along with the deceiver. We we are being deceived about things that pertain to truth because we don't like how that truth makes us feel. And so when we think about pride... In, in Ezekiel 28, verse 2, obviously, the context of Ezekiel 28 is the prince of Tyre. It may be that the Spirit is using the prince of Tyre to allude to the fall of the devil. 
But to the prince of Tyre in, in Exodus 28:2, he would say to him, because your heart is lifted up and you say, I am a God, I sit in the seat of gods, then you're going to be brought low. I'm going to humble you and I'm going to take all this away from you. There's a, a catchy little saying that makes people feel good in our culture that's been around for a couple of years now and people are putting it on signs and in my neighborhood I go for walks and these signs are all over my neighborhood and the sign, you know, the, the, the top of the sign it says in print that you can read and then there's print that you've got to get up closer to it to, uh, to see what the particular bullet points are. But at the head of it, it says, hate has no home here. So, you know, somebody walks by that and look at that. Oh, that's, that's good. I like that. that. That makes me feel good. There's, there's no place for hate in their home. It's just love. Well, in Proverbs, the sixth chapter, beginning in verse 16, what we read there is that the true and living God, that there are six things, and then it's like, oh, by the way, there's another one. There's seven things that the true and living God hates. And so in Psalm 23, I don't know anybody that doesn't like Psalm 23. I mean, people that aren't even Christians like Psalm 23 because it's just beautiful poetry, right? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Oh, hate has no, has no place here. Hate, there's, there's no room for hate in this house. There's room for hate in the house of the Lord. And there are six, there are seven things that he hates, and one of the things that he hates is a proud look. And at the end of the day, what 1 Timothy 3 verse 6 is telling us about the devil is that's how we ended up with the devil in the first place, pride. Don't appoint someone to the role of a, of a bishop, of a presbyter, of an elder, of a shepherd, of a local church, who is a novice, lest pride results in him falling into the same condemnation as the devil. And so the true and living God, he resists the proud. And so when we, when we think about the question, what am I deceived about? We don't need to respond to that question with nothing. Humility, humility, humility says... What am I deceived about? One of the things that I, that I love and, and appreciate about, about, where we, about where we are, I believe, and I may be deceived about this, but I believe that when we come together on the Lord's Day and on Wednesday night and we have a Bible class at Annandale, I don't believe that it's a doctrinal review session. I don't believe that's what we do. I believe we read the Word of God and we... And we talk about it and, and, and we seek God. And we seek, to, we seek God's will for our lives. We're not just going through the motions of this is what we've always believed. We just always understood this. We, we seek God in His Word. We seek His truth. And in doing that, we, we encourage one another not to be prideful about what we already know, but in humility to say... Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And so when you, when you think about this question, what are you deceived about? I think there are three areas in which we need to examine ourselves, and we need to constantly, continually examine ourselves. What am I conceived about as it pertains to God himself? What am I conceived about when it, when it pertains to, to God's heart? And what am I conceived deceived about when it pertains to his will for my life. And so when we think about God himself, there are people that are, conf that, that are deceived about the triune nature of God. There are people that don't believe in the deity of Jesus Christ or the deity of the Holy Spirit. They're deceived about that. And when it comes to God's heart, I want to tell you, beloved, Romans eleven twenty two. 22. 
Romans 11.22 is always going to be Romans 11.22. You know, and, and we live in this world where we just want to eliminate hate. You know, hate has no home here. And we just want it to all be love. Love is love. There's, there's a new one in, in, in the D.C. area. You know, God is love. Therefore, God loves love. That's the newest one with the rainbow flag and the other flag and all the, you know. In Romans 11, verse 22, we are, we are called to consider the goodness of God, and God is good. But that's not all there is to him. There is severity to him, too. And we're going to talk about that on Thursday night when we, when we talk about fear God and keep his commandments. Fear God and keep his commandments is not just the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. That's the will of God in Christ Jesus as revealed by the Holy Spirit for you and for me and for all of those who would call upon the name of the Lord. There are some things that God cares about that matters to him. And he's right serious about us being obedient to those things. And that's one of the blessings of being in Christ because in Christ he's going to deliver us from the wrath to come. There is wrath that is coming. And in Christ, we, we, don't have to, we don't have to live our lives in this hopeless situation that there, there's going to be this awful experience that we have in which we're separated from God forever because Jesus is going to deliver, that, deliver us from that. So when it comes to God's will for your life, 2 Peter 3.9 is God's will for your life. I don't care who you are. I don't care where, what you look like. I don't care where you were born. I don't care what your gender is. I don't care what your skin color is. I don't care from what tribe or nation under heaven you're from. God's will for your life is 2 Peter 3.9. The first word out of John the Baptist's mouth when he began preaching the gospel of the kingdom is the word repent. The first word out of the mouth of Jesus Christ when he began preaching the gospel of the kingdom was repent. Once Jesus was preached on the day of Pentecost and people were convicted about the message. They believed what was taught and they asked the question, what shall we do? The first word out of Peter's mouth in response to the truth of the gospel, the facts of the gospel, is repent. The will of God for you and me and everyone is that we would repent. That we would repent of sin. That's what God wants you to do with your life. And at the end of the day, if, you, if, if you're looking for a, a concise explanation of God's will for your life, it is Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. And that's why we're going to devote one of, our, one of our nights together to just that. Fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole of man. The covenants have changed, but God's will for your life hasn't changed. There's law in Christ Jesus that he wants you to obey. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so in Christ, life is about fearing God and keeping the commandments of Jesus. It's about keeping in step with the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5, 26 and the ESV translation. How do we keep in step with the Spirit? By, by, by following the Spirit's voice? Well, how do we know what His voice sounds like? His, His voice is the Word of God. The, the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. And so when we think about... God's will for our lives. I just want to tell you, 
in full assurance of faith, full assurance of, of faith this morning, not as your enemy or not as the evil that you need to be turning from, but I want you to know that God's will for your life is not that you be somebody. God's will for your life is not that you would be somebody in the kingdom. It doesn't matter if anyone else knows your name other than Jesus. It makes no difference whatsoever if your name is printed anywhere with the exception of the Lamb's book of life. The church at Thessalonica was struggling with their identity and what should we be doing and how should we be doing it and should we be bringing attention to ourselves? Should we be out there turning the world upside down in all these other ways besides preaching the gospel? And the Holy Spirit would say to them, I'll tell you what you need to do. You need to aspire, all right, but you need to aspire to lead a quiet life. When it comes to the kingdom of God on earth, There's already somebody, and his name is Jesus. And what God wants you to do in your life is exalt him. He wants him to live in you and for your life to be lived in him. He wants Galatians 2 to be who you are and what your life is about. It's no longer I who live. My life is not about me. It's about the I am. And the life that I now live in Christ, I live by faith. I'm still living in the flesh, but I'm living by faith. And my life looks like fearing Him and keeping His commandments. Whether or not I live in northern Virginia or middle Tennessee, or whether or not I can assemble on the first day of the week with my brethren, or I'm exiled to the island of Patmos and I can't leave, I can't assemble. Wherever you are, beloved... You can fear God and keep His commandments and reflect the glory of Jesus living in you. That's what your life is supposed to be about. Maybe you're deceived about that. Do you think God misspeaks? Do you think that God has your best interest in mind when He commands you to do something or to avoid something? Do you believe God? There are a lot of people in in the world right now, and, and particularly in our, in our country, that are deceived about gender. Do you believe God? In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God from the beginning devi- defined gender, and he said male and female. And he said, I, I'm, I'm creating male and female in my image. And that is repeated throughout the book of Genesis. Do you believe God? Or are you deceived about that? Do you like how that makes you feel because of the culture in which you live? Does that rub you the wrong way? Or do you just believe God? The devil comes to you as an angel of light and he says, Oh, what about the church? I I, I mean, I, I will say that that I love you because you've, you've invited me to come three times. I mean, that says a lot about your judgment, right? I mean, I, you know, there are a lot of guys preaching that would be glad to come. And, you know, this is the third time you've invited me. So that's a, and I don't, I don't see this as, 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 as something that, that you struggle with here, but there's just a lot of people that, 
you know, I associate with now that they just, they've been deceived about the importance of the local church. They've been deceived about the nature of it and, and the point of it. And so one of the, one of the awful things that the pandemic did and, and that the devil used the pandemic to do is the devil used the pandemic to redefine church. And so in 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen, when you come together, when you come together, right? So God has revealed the meaning of the word. He's, he's revealed the nature of the word. And so what is the church? It's a living organism that's made up of individual members. Jesus himself is the head and we're individual members of his body and of one another. A non-assembling assembly is not an assembly. I mean, one of the things that we communicated to our people when, when we went virtual for two months is we're doing it wrong. We're trying to be good soldiers of Christ as, as, we, as we obey Romans 13 and as we obey 1 Peter 2, and, and we're trying not to kill the, the, the Monroes and the, and the Weatherbees, and we're trying not to kill the grandmas in our church. But from the beginning, we, we told our people... We're not doing it right. And in the spirit of Hezekiah, we prayed, you know, help us to get through this storm. We know we're doing it wrong, except this. Our intention is not to continue to do it wrong. But there are a lot of Christians, beloved, that they just they haven't gone back. They're still, they're still virtual. And, and so they go, they go somewhere and they just log on to their favorite preacher in their favorite church. And I'll tell you what we did to solve that problem. We turned it off. And we turned it off because we, we, had, we had members that they just told us, as long as it's an option, I'm not coming back. And, okay, well, we're going to turn it off then. Okay, I'll see you the Sunday that you turn it off. And they came back. The devil has deceived a lot of us about that. And the devil has deceived a lot of us about faithfulness. It's God's will for us to be members of local churches and to be faithful to, to, the, to the shepherds, to one another, to be here. I mean, I, I, I can't tell you how overjoyed I am that you, that you are here on time and that you, that you thought this, this mattered enough to come. That encourages me so greatly. Thank you for being here. What have I got? Am I done or do I have a minute? One minute, two minutes. There we go. I mean, I got this whole list of things. I'm not going to talk about those. You can read these. As I say them, these are really great. That's why I wrote them out so you could see them. The deceiver seeks to deceive you into being his child. And that's how Jesus frames it in John 8, 44. You're either of your father in heaven or you're of your father the devil. Binary. The Lord loves that two, that two, that two option thing. He loves that from the beginning. And I love that about him because when I go to buy a Coke now, there's like a, a hundred different ones to choose from and it gives me a panic attack and I can't deal with it. But when it comes to God, you either obey or you disobey. You're either saved or lost. You're either male or you're either female. You're either his child or you're of the devil. And there are consequences to it. And the deceiver is going to seek to deceive you into being his child. He's an evil father of lies who has evil desires and is actively seeking, to, seeking your ruin. Look at what happened to Adam and Eve. The deceiver seeks to deceive you into being a citizen of his kingdom. He is an evil ruler of a kingdom that has already been defeated. And we'll talk more about that as we progress through the week. The deceiver, the evil one, Satan, he doesn't love you. He's not your friend and he's not your adversary. And just as, as Adam and Eve were held accountable, he's not going to be there to, to take up for you when you stand before the judgment seat. His kingdom is founded and built on lies and deceit and seduction. And his power consists pr- principally in his ability to deceive. And here's the thing. Every son of the, of the evil one is a, is a victim, but, but every son of the evil one is not an innocent victim. 
You know, what did, what, did, what did Eve say to God? He deceived me. And what did, what did God say to her? Oh, well, that's okay. Come give us a hug. Is that what he said to her? No. And, you know, and as a father of, of three kids and, as, and, and, and as, as, as a father who had the opportunity to deliver one of his kids, I want to tell you, that curse that he placed on women in Genesis 3rd chapter, that's no joke. That's not funny. There's nothing comedic about that. And what, is, and what is all of that pain reflecting? It's reflecting the consequences of sin. And so every, every son of the devil is, is, is a victim, but it's not an innocent victim because every son of the evil one is an active participant in the process of his own deception. And that is why you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him in full assurance of faith that he will direct your paths. I'm going to stop because I'm supposed to stop. Thank you for being here this morning. Thanks again for the opportunity to be here. And we'll build on all this as we go through the week.